Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. We're going to get started here. Uh, do you guys remember being a kid and the sort of the playground activity of choosing teams? Do you guys remember that? For some of you, this is a trauma that we're going to pray for here in a little bit. Um, you know, like you're the kickball team or the basketball team, and like you're on the playground, and you know, the two recognized best people become team captains, right? You guys know this. If you don't know this, this trauma, you were the one. You guys were the, the ones. Uh, and the rest of us, me, and all the rest of us would line up, and we would, uh, you, you all would pick us, right? Those of you that are team captains, you picked us, and, and so, of course, you, you know, let's say for this example, let's say it's the basketball team. I, you know, I'm honestly not very good at any sport, but I like to be part of the team. Um, so, you know, I would line up, and I was not the, anyone's first pick, right? I was not anyone's first pick for basketball. I'm a little bit short. I'm fairly fat. Get up about four inches if I really try, right? Um, and so I was not the first choice, but usually the, the first choice was like the ones that everybody knew, you know, they're on the school's team, they're on like the high school team, and everybody picks them. And so like the first four or five picks go pretty fast. It's like, yeah, of course, I've got that guy, I've got that guy. And then there's like this sort of like, it's, it's like, okay, you're tall, so I'm going to pick you, because if you're tall, that's probably a good sign. Or maybe, you know, I know you're a little bit fast, that would help, I'm not very fast either. Uh, and then the, the team choices get into damage control, right? Right? I mean, it's, it's damage control. It's like, well, there's a bunch of you left. None of you look any good, and we don't really know. And there's an inner, there's a space between the two, the damage control phase and the we're sort of picking the people. There's this space where if you try to look sporty, right? If you try to look like, you know, you, you know what you're doing, maybe you'll get picked. And I just wanted to be on the team. Like, I'm not good, but like if I had a ball, you know, I'm trying to hold it like I know what I'm doing, right? You know, I never try to spin it on my finger. That never worked. But right, like, or else try to stand a little bit taller, like see how tall I am, right? You know, I'm doing stretches to make it look like, oh, I know what I'm doing. Like, you know, this is how you stretch when you play basketball, I assume, right? I'm just trying to like, I'm going to be in this game and I want you to pick me. And, you know, a lot of times... Uh, I, I never got picked because I just don't look like the kind of person that's good at basketball. <laughs> Maybe a surprise to you. Uh, it makes sense, though, that given the game we're playing, that you pick the people who are good, right? It makes a lot of sense. What's interesting, though, is that God doesn't do that. Like, God doesn't pick the way we pick for the basketball game, right? Like, he doesn't regularly pick the people that we think he should. Like, if you were going to build a global religious movement, if you were like, oh, we're going to like, this is going to spread around the world, it's going to change the world, who would you pick? You would pick the wealthy people because they have the resources to make it happen. You'd pick the really well-connected because they know a lot of people. You, you know, nowadays, you'd pick the ones who are really good at social media. You'd pick all the people who are affluent, right? You would pick these people. And if, you know, I mean, at least I would, Right? If you were going to start a religious movement to go around the world, you would pick all of the best people. And yet, 
over and over, cover to cover through this whole book. Those are not the people that God picks. That over and over, God demonstrates this deep compassion for the powerless. The not yets. The not evers. Again and again, we're told that our faith gets measured by how we respond to God's invitation to participate in care for the powerless. If you've, maybe some of you know the book by Tom Holland called uh, Dominion. And he talks about how, through, through this book, how before the Christian movement started on the scene, to be powerless was to be scorned, right? Like, this is, not a, this is not something you should value. And yet, because of the influence of Christianity, people nowadays can actually take advantage of being powerless, right? That being powerless is something that God cares about. God cares about powerless people. I mean, maybe I should say it like that. It's not that we're trying to be powerless, but God cares about the powerless. We've been in this series called Hungry for God for a few weeks now, and the idea behind the series is that the Bible invites us into an ever-increasing desire for more of God. Like, that's my hope for you in this series, is that by the time we get to the end, you have an ever-increasing desire for more of God. And something I want you to understand today, and not just for today, but always, is that hunger for God actually functions opposite of how hunger for food works. Right? So if you're hungry, it means you need to eat, right? You're, you're hungry, you know, you, you go all day, who goes all day without a meal, right? We go all day without a meal, we get to the end of the day, and I'm really hungry, and it just means I need to eat. It means I haven't eaten. And if I eat well, I'm not hungry anymore. But hunger for God works the opposite way. See, hunger for God comes in increasing measure as you feast on God himself. As you invest yourself more and more in the things of God and in the kingdom of God, you actually become hungrier for God. It works the opposite. And this is really important for us to understand, really, uh, for all of life, but especially today. That if you experience God's presence, you'll want more of God's presence. If you experience healing from God, you want more healing from God. Have you seen this in your own life, right? Like if the, if the presence of God comes, it increases a desire for more of God's presence. We're not actually satisfied. We actually are hungrier because of encounter with God. And here's why that matters. Because in God's kingdom, where God is in charge, there's always a continual opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. So in a very real way, our hunger for God can be the measuring stick by which we measure our relationship with God. The degree to which we are in the kingdom of God is the degree to which our hunger for God grows. Your hunger for God grows in the kingdom. It doesn't grow apart from the kingdom. And what I want you to see today is that caring for the powerless is a foundational kingdom activity that builds our hunger for God. I'm calling this message, I'm, I'm amused already. God's playground basketball picks. Can you go with me there? God's playground basketball picks. Let's pray and then we'll just look at scripture. And so, Lord, I do just thank you, Lord, for mothers. And I, and I, I thank you, God, for the, the compassion that mothers show. 
on. I believe that that's a thing that you do, Lord, that you put compassion in mothers. But I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with compassion today. That today we would have an encounter with your spirit that would fill us with compassion. God, that our hearts would begin to break for the things that break yours. And that in that, Lord, you would stir hunger. More and more hunger for you. God, I pray that you would put your words in my mouth. Would you fill me with your spirit? And would you put power in this message in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. If you have a Bible or a smart device or any other Bible, uh, I don't know what you call it, any other Bible. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Psalm 68 is a, is a psalm that paints a picture of the celebration that takes place as God assumes the throne among his people. And in a real way, Psalm 68 is kind of a picture of uh, what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes. And so it's 35 verses long. But we're not going to read 30. Some of you are like, is he really going to read that? No, no. Uh, but we're going to read the first six verses of Psalm 68. If you're not sure where it is, you just sort of flop it in the middle, and you'll be right about Psalms. Psalm 68, beginning of verse 1, and here's what it says. It says, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke. As wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful, sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families, he leads out the prisoners with singing but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Something you need to understand is when a new king is established uh, in, in the uh, Old Testament times, when a new king would be established, the common practice would be for the new king to root out and get rid of all of those who were opposed to his rule and his reign. And so what's happening in this picture is, is that the... the, the procession that, that leads God in is saying, get rid of all of those who oppose your rule and reign. And, and the kingdom then would be built of those people who are in alignment with the new king. That that's the way that this would work. But the determination as to who's in or out of the kingdom is not ours to make. The kingdom uh, would be made up of people determined solely by the king. Who lives, who dies, who is spared, is, is solely by the new king. Verses 1 to 3 outline that sorting that happens as God becomes king. And if we're honest, we probably read those first three verses pretty quick without much thought, don't we? You just kind of like glance over them and you're like, yeah, our default posture, I, I, I'm going to tell you some things about myself and I would imagine you're very similar. Our default posture when we read those first three verses is probably like, of course, we're on the side of the righteous and everyone else that I don't like is on the side of the enemies, right? Is that not sort of how we sort this? We, most of us don't go, oh gosh, I'm on the side of the enemies, right? That's not our default. Our default is that we read it and we say, well, of course I'm on the side of the righteous. And then, of course, the next step that we take is we start thinking of all the people that we don't like or all the people that we consider our enemies, and we say, clearly, they are on the enemy's side. Now, some of you are like, you're reading into my brain and my thoughts. I wish you would stop. 
But listen, I don't have any superpowers. I just know that we've all been conditioned culturally to do that. Have you seen this in our culture? Like, just think about every issue. I mean, the the past three years has been a, a great space to evaluate this. Think about every issue over the past three years. I'm not going to take any stance on any of them, okay? So if you hear me taking a stance on them, that's not what's happening. But think about this, how it started a few years ago. COVID is a hoax. COVID is a pandemic. Like, think about that issue. Whatever side you fell on, you imputed God's power to, and you decided everyone on the other side was enemies, right? And you're like, that's an oversimplification. Go with me for a minute. Then it came to masks, right? We should all wear masks to take care of our neighbor. No, your government can't make you wear masks. And whatever side you chose, you said this is the right side. And the other ones, well, they're enemies of God, right? Whatever side you chose. I mean, think about every issue. Like, should the church meet or shouldn't it? Some of you were like, well, Hebrews says we shouldn't give up meeting. And so... I'm on the side of God because we're going to keep going to church and we're not going to stop. And some of you were like, we should love and care about our neighbors. And whichever side you chose, you decided this is the right side and the other people are enemies, right? Like, I mean, again, it maybe is an oversimplification. But the scary part is, like, pick any issue. Like, our culture has made it so that we're forced into this either or. It's either this or it's that. And if you're on the other side, you're the enemies. And if it's an oversimplification, right? It is an oversimplification because most of you see a little bit of nuance. If it's an oversimplification, the pressure of the surrounding culture forces you to choose a side. Or at least they try to, right? The amount of pressure that builds to not choose a side, it's, it's significant, wasn't it? This is the way our culture has forced us to think. There's You're either on the good side or you're on the bad side. And what gets worse is because we're broken humans, because we have all this brokenness and wrapped up inside of us, we start saying, well, not only is the other side wrong, they're actually enemies of God. We wouldn't say that, right? Most of us wouldn't say that. But don't we sort of think that way? Whichever side you chose, you start looking, I mean, pick any issue whatsoever. There's you know, again, I, I, I don't want to polarize everybody, but look at the, the thing that just happened right now. This whole leak of this, this is as close to abortion as I want to get, okay, from this stage. Uh, but think about this leak of this document. And there's, it forced everybody into one of two sides. And we start saying, well, clearly you are God's enemy, right? Everybody's like, oh, I got, like, you guys sucked up the seat cushion. Everybody got nervous. Did you feel it? Everybody got real nervous. But any, any issue in our culture automatically gets forced into one of two sides, and we sort of force people to be either on our side, of course we're on God's side, and they're the enemies of God. During the Civil War, one of Abraham Lincoln's advisors said uh, that he was thankful that God was on the Union side. And Abraham Lincoln said this, He said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. You see, the big problem that we have, the big stumbling block that we have to caring for the powerless begins right here. We mistakenly believe 
that we have the, the ability or even the right to decide that which side God is on. We, we believe that we can decide whose side God is on. And that, that when we do this, we're taking a seat on the throne that only belongs to God. We take a seat on a throne that's not ours. And what I can guarantee will happen when you do this is that your hunger for God will wane. Whenever we get into a position of deciding whose side God is on, we have actually placed ourselves above God. And God now exists to serve us. And it's really, really hard to be hungry for a God who's beneath us. I talked about this sort of maybe a couple months ago when we talked about making judgments, right? It gets really hard to serve a God that we believe is beneath us. Before we ever talk about anything else, the first issue we have to get right is that God is on the throne. But that's the posture that we exist in. Is that if there's a place in our lives where God is not in charge, that's the first issue. We can't even talk about caring for the powerless if we don't have this part figured out. This matters for everything you would try to do. It's not just caring for the powerless. Anything that you want to do to grow in hunger for God, anything you want to do to grow in hunger for God has to start by God being on the throne. Because otherwise, hunger won't grow. In God's kingdom, hunger for God grows. It will not grow in another kingdom. This is probably a good time to take our own temperature, right? Like, just take a second and think about where God is in relation to the throne of your life. This is a good spot for that. Like, is God on the throne? Like, if you were to sit here honestly in the presence of God, and you were to take out of your pocket your relationship with God and hold it up to him, and the two of you together, collectively, evaluate what this relationship looks like, who would he say is in charge? I mean, think about it for a minute. Seriously. If God were to evaluate the relationship between you and him, who would he say is in charge? It's a reasonable question to consider. Because before we can go any further, we have to know that God is in charge. What I can say is if you would say your, your relationship with God is steady, declining, or non-existent, if your hunger for God is not growing, what I can tell you is that there is some place in your life where God's not in charge. Can I tell you a personal story? There was, when I gave my life to Jesus in 2003, um, 2004, we were in a church, and the church taught us how to do uh, a Bible study, like a self-led devotional Bible study. You guys know about those, right? And it was called, the, maybe some of you have heard of it, it's on actually the Bible app, but Life Journaling. And they, Life Journaling used to sell these paper journals, and in the front, it gave you a reading plan to read through, and it told you how to study the Bible. Well, I ate that stuff up. And I read through the Bible every year for probably seven years, and it was so life-giving. And, and God would meet me in the midst of it, and God would speak things to me and would, would just speak my identity to me, and it was so good. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't. All of a sudden, it was like, this is not as life-giving as it used to. So then I thought, well, maybe I'm just not reading the scripture slow enough. And that helped a little bit. 
And then I thought, well, maybe I have to read the scripture in a different translation. That'll help, right? Let's spice it up a little bit. And let's read it out loud, which, by the way, I would advocate. You should read scripture out loud. It's really good. But I was doing all of these things to sort of force God into this box that I had put him in, that this is the way that I meet with God. And instead of me going to God as king and having a a life-altering transformational encounter with God, I began to have God in my devotional life as servant. God, this is the time that I have put for you to do things in me, so do it. This is the form that I expect you to, to operate in, so do it. And over a period of time, I just found, I was doing this thing, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but have you ever had the time where all of a sudden the ways you used to connect with God get really lifeless? Have you ever had that where you're like, man, I am not excited to do this? And then people are like, well, put it on your calendar, and that'll make it easier, right? And so you get your time on your calendar, and you're like, I just don't know. I'm just not into it. I'm not excited about this. The problem is, is that we've, instead of God being the king of our lives in those areas, we've actually made God subservient to us. Have you seen this? Have you seen this in your life? Like there are ways in which we put God not in the throne, but we put him beneath us. I, I mean, and some of you are like, yeah, of, of course, I, I know that one. For some of you, that's like, well, that's where the message ends for me. That's, that's my problem. That's exactly what my problem is, you know? God is not on the throne of my work life. When I go to work, God's not king there. I don't let him be king there. Or for some of you, it's like, you know, God is not king of my financial life, or God's not king of my family. You know, the way I parent, God's not king of that. I'm the king. For a lot of us, that there are, there's some place where God is just not in charge. And before we talk about caring for the powerless, we have to get this right. I mean, it doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus. Calvin said that the, the human heart is a factory of idols. We all put things above God at some point. And before we move forward, I want to just take a second and say there's good news for you if this is you today. It's probably most of us at some level. If you're aware of a place where God is not on the throne, you can confess that to him. Get off the throne. Let him get on the throne. And worship him as king. That's a thing you can do right now. And then ask him for a step forward. Right? Like we don't want to just sort of make some sort of mental ascent that I've You know, yeah, I've done something different. I was at church, and I did a thing that was different, and I prayed, and God said yes. That's that's good. But you ought to put your body in motion and say, God, how would you have me live differently? Maybe it's like, if God's not in charge of your political life, maybe it's that you stop watching cable news. Maybe. Maybe. But ask the Lord for, for some step forward because the fact of the matter is, is it requires humility to go forward, doesn't it? We don't get to call the shots whenever we care for the powerless. God calls the shots and it requires a, a certain amount of humility. And in everywhere where God is not on the throne, your next step is to humble yourself. And unless and until God is actually on the throne of your life, you'll find that your life 
with God is stale and unmoving, right? My desire for you is to not have a stale and unmoving life with God. But verse 4 shows us a picture of what life could be like. Verse 4 says this. It says, sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. We're going to talk about worship in a few weeks. But what I want you to see is something that's not evident in this verse. How many of you honestly know, honestly, the Lord is here, by the way? Put your hand up if you know actually what the word extol means. How many of you use it on a regular basis? Everybody's like, I don't One? Okay. Sort of. There's a sort of. The word extol here is really important. The Hebrew word behind the word extol actually carries several meanings. One is to cast up a way or a highway. Cast up a highway. So what's happening when we sing and worship to God our actual, as our actual king, we cast up a highway to the Lord. The NRSV, I actually really like this. The NRSV offers this alternate translation to that line that says, cast up a highway to the Lord who, who rides in the desert. As if to say, we want to make a highway for the Lord to come in. And here's a picture of what's happening when we worship. We invite the Lord to actually come into our midst and be king here now. Now, not like sometime down the road, not in a sort of heady way. We actually invite him, when we worship, we invite him to come and do what he wants now as king. I don't know if that's exciting to you. It's really exciting to me. And what we're saying to him is we want you to come and set right everything that's wrong. Right? We're saying we want your kingdom to come. We want you to invade all of the areas of lack such that there might be provision. We want you to invade every need. We want you to invade every brokenness. Everything that's not right, we want you to set it right. We're inviting you to come. That's why worship is so important. It's so important. Now, I understand that biblically speaking, worship involves more than music and musical singing, right? Like, if you read through the Bible, you will find that worship is more than that. But do you know, in biblically speaking, it's never less. That God's people are a singing people. That what we do here is sort of like a beginning to living a lifestyle of worship. It's never less, but it's often more. And let me just say this, okay? It's not just muttering through worship or suffering through it as if you're eating the broccoli that you know is good for you, but you don't like it. Or for me, it's Brussels sprouts. Not interested. I'll eat them. Put enough bacon juice on them. That's, that's the problem. That's why the jacket almost doesn't fit. Um, the root word here for rejoice means jump for joy. So it's not just mumbling through the worship songs because we have them at the beginning, and I guess I'm going to say. It's actually jump for joy. Rejoice means jump for joy. Now, I know some of us, we have ankle issues. We have knee issues and hip issues and cardiovascular stuff where if we're jumping for joy, the heart rate might get a little bit too high, and we might have, uh, you know, have to make some phone calls. I'm not saying you have to jump for joy, But what I will say is that worship is to be expressive. 
Some of us get more excited about our favorite sports team winning than we do about the Lord. I know I have. I've tried to be very intentional about worshiping the Lord more than I do whenever my favorite team scores a goal. Have you ever been in those arenas? They're just, just giant worship venues. You're just worshiping something else. Have you seen that? Some of us get more excited about things like that than we do about the Lord. Worship is important because it's the activity of a people who have put God completely on the throne. What I will tell you is the more expressive someone is in worship, when you ask them their story, it has never failed me. I like to ask people their story when they're really expressive. Tell me your story. It never fails that they have these deep stories of rescue by the Lord and that he is fully on the throne of their lives. You should do it. Just as you see people who are expressive, ask them their story. And here's why all this matters. Like, why does this matter? Why it matters is that God is on the throne. Uh, Why it matters that God is on the throne and why it matters that we worship him as if that's true is because God picks people that we wouldn't pick. So if I'm on the throne and I just sort of half-heartedly worship God as part of my life, the people I'm going to pick are not the people that God picks. If you and I are in charge and if you and I are on the throne of our own lives, we pick much like the kids on the playground, right? We pick the people that we like. We pick the people that look like us. We pick the people of the same affluence. We pick the people who make us feel comfortable. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't pick the people that we pick. And if we are trying to build a church or the kingdom of God, we pick the strong, the rich, and the powerful. And what we end up with is a church or a kingdom that has little to no desire for God and lots and lots of concern about who is the greatest. If God's not in charge of this whole thing, that's why it's so important. If God's not in charge of this whole thing, we walk around with titles. Like, have you noticed titles don't matter too much here? Like, the reason they don't matter so much is because God is in charge. He's the only one that matters. Jesus is our Savior. That's the only title that really matters. And I'm just one who is saved, who is serving Jesus. If we don't get this part right, if God is not in charge, it matters a whole lot about our place, doesn't it? We start putting our names on pews. That's my seat. Start naming all the halls after different people who give a lot of money, right? I'm stepping on some toes. Apologize, sort of. But God doesn't pick that way. This is where I want to go with this. Look again at verses 5 and 6. It says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. The people in Psalm 68 are celebrating God as their king precisely because he doesn't pick the way that the world picks. If you look at the list, they're the very people that if I'm building my own kingdom, I want to get rid of. They're all the people that slow us down. They don't have a lot to offer. I was sitting with this passage on Tuesday morning and God just broke my heart. These are the people that we sort of, we could get further if if they weren't along, you know, if they weren't along for the ride because they take more time. And what God showed me is that is the mission. Those are the people that he cares about. 
There's not some like magical, mystical, if we just do this, we'll get the bazillion people and the giant building and all the things. He said, that is the people I care about. He puts the lonely in families. One of the things I love, those of you, I don't want to call all of you guys out, but those of you who foster kids and adopt kids, it's a picture of God's heart. It's so beautiful to see that he puts the lonely in families. That he makes those who don't belong, belong. That he cares for the orphan. He cares for the widow. He cares for the fatherless. But it all starts with God being in charge. God acts as a father to the fatherless. And here's what I know happens in some of us when we read this. We're tempted to write it off as I just cherry-picked one of the -the out-of-the-way passages that talk about caring for the powerless. And I want you to see that that's not true. What I want you to understand is that this is a constant drumbeat through Scripture. Let me show you some examples. I'm just going to read the Bible to you. Is that okay? We can do that in church. Exodus 22, 21 to 24 says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. Isaiah 1, 17 says, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. So just in case you think, well, it's all Old Testament. Matthew 25 Verse 34 says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. James 1, 27 says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I could show you a hundred passages, cover to cover in scripture where this is so foundational. But can I just be completely honest with you? Just completely vulnerable, like I'm trying to teach the folks in Emotionally Focused to do? There's a lot of fear in talking about this for me, for a number of reasons. One of the first reasons is if you look around and you go, well, what is this church doing to care for the powerless? I could give you a couple of examples, but I feel like it's not a lot. And I feel very convicted by that. That's the first one. The second, the second fear that I have is that as soon as you do it and talk about it in America, people assume you're being political. People make the assumption. As soon as you talk about caring for the unborn, people assume a whole list of things, right? As soon as you talk about uh, caring for pregnant mothers who feel like they have no options, people assume a lot of things. These are the things I'm afraid of to talk about this. As soon as you talk about caring for immigrants, people assume a whole lot of things. 
As soon as you talk about caring for the homeless, people assume a whole lot of things. And if I'm completely honest, I don't want to be labeled as any of these things. And so there's a temptation for me to go, these hundreds of passages where God cares about the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, I'd rather not talk about those because it makes me uncomfortable and it makes me afraid. But here's what I know. I know that among the powerless is one of the places that God will always be at work. That if you want to meet God, you can always find him among the powerless. I know that caring for the powerless is one of the places that I can always join God in his mission. I know that caring for the powerless is one of the places that you will see the most miraculous stuff happen. Like we've prayed for lots of healing and seen lots of healing. I know you will see more among the powerless. And so I know these things, and so in spite of what I'm afraid that people might label me as or call me, I choose to be submitted first to my king. I choose to seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness first, and I'm just going to choose to let the chips fall where they may and let people call me what they call me and trust that God has my best interest in mind. And I'm asking that God would give me grace to see the people that he sees that I overlook. And I'm asking that God will continue to give me grace to have compassion on those people who need compassion. The people who he has the most compassion for. And what I have learned is that the more I press into caring for the powerless, the more a hunger for God grows in me. That if you want to be hungry for God, if you want a hunger for God to grow in your heart, you press into caring for the powerless. There's lots of exciting things you could do, but this is seemingly a mundane thing, and yet God cares so deeply about it. I believe the invitation of the Lord to us all is that we might join him in caring for the powerless. But where I believe that begins for all of us is that we would desire to see the people God sees. To see the people that get overlooked. You know, you could start by just seeing the people who are on the side of the road who when you pull up and they have a sign, you look the other way and roll the window up. That'd be a good place to start. How do I know you do that? Because I do the same thing. Maybe we start to see the people at work that, that everybody just steps on. They're the butt of everybody's joke. Maybe we see the kid who nobody seems to care for. Maybe we see the people who can't be the advocates for themselves, and yet we would be the advocate for them. And the beautiful thing is, maybe we could walk towards the powerlessness and know that God is already at work there. And as people who follow Jesus, we have a model, don't we? Jesus, who had all power and all privilege, saw us powerless. And what he did with his power and his privilege is he laid it down that we might be lifted up. What if we became people who did that?
could we be the kind of people who would follow our Savior Jesus into the care of the powerless? Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.